You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Premiering May 10th, The Crime of the Century examines the role of drug companies, political operatives, and government regulations in enabling the nation's opioid crisis. Director Alex Gibney and Washington Post investigative reporters Scott Hyam and Sari Horowitz join The Post to discuss the documentary. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steedsell as a senior writer at the Washington Post. Today, we're gonna to be discussing a new two-part documentary set to premiere next week. It's about the opioid crisis in the United States and it's called The Crime of the Century. I'm delighted to welcome director Alex Gibney and two of my Washington Post colleagues, Sari Horowitz and Scott Hyam, both investigative journalists this reporting was key to the narrative. A very warm welcome to you all. Thanks, great to be here. Thank you. Alex, let's start with you. You've done films on topics as varied as Scientology, election interference, and the coronavirus. What drew you to this particular topic and how long have you been working on it? I've been working on it for about three years. And honestly, what drew me to the topic was a conversation with the investigative unit at The Post. Uh, the editor's there, I, I believe, even at that first lunch, Scott Hyam was there. And um, they brought it to my attention that we had been kind of misunderstanding the opioid crisis as a kind of a natural catastrophe, like a hurricane or a flood. And that it really involved a series of crimes and also a series of chapters related to the kinds of drugs. And so with that in mind, it seemed like a huge story. It was just kind of hiding in plain sight. And so I, I was determined to dig in, to tell a story about the forest rather than the trees. Wow. And Scott, so you were there at this original lunch. Tell us about your early recognition. I mean, uh, Alex just used the term crime. How did, what was your realization? What was going on at the beginning of that collaboration that's so key to this movie? Well, you know, like like any great investigation, uh, this one began with a, a, a simple question and a, and a curious reporter. Uh, the question was, um, why are there so many pills on the streets of America? And why are so many people overdosing? What is going on here? And, and that question was asked of Lenny Bernstein, who's a reporter on, on the health desk. And uh, Lenny began uh, uh, reporting like any good reporter uh, would do and start by calling uh, sources, developing sources, looking at court documents, looking at settlement documents between drug companies and the DEA and the Justice Department, trying to figure out um, what was going on here. And uh, in the course of his reporting, he came across a guy who you'll see uh, in the documentary, a guy named Joe Ranazizi, who was the head of the DEA's uh, Diversion Control Division, which oversees the pharmaceutical industry. And Joe was kind of the ultimate insider who was pushed out of the agency. And we'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, but, uh, you know, Lenny and I worked on this investigation for two years. We did a collaboration with 60 Minutes that some of you have, may have seen. Uh, and then Sari joined the investigation almost four years ago at a very critical uh, point uh, when uh, we were about to get a bunch of documents that really blew this story uh, wide open, and Sari's going to talk about that a little bit. Yes, sorry, I'm curious about that. So you came in a little bit later. Fentanyl was the drug of choice, I think, at that moment or coming in. Tell us about what what drew you in at that point and what was going on, just the big picture as briefly as you can. Uh, well, Francis, uh, four years ago, I was covering the Justice Department, 
And officials there kept talking to me about this street drug called fentanyl that was killing thousands of people. It was a synthetic opioid made in China, sold over the internet, and people were buying this. It was being shipped into this country yeah, through the mail. It was coming in through the postal service and also over the Southwest border. And they told me it was the deadliest drug on the street at that time. And so I had a lot of questions. Um, it was kind of, where did this come from? How did this start? Where did it start? Why was it killing so many people? Why was it so popular? And why was law enforcement having such a hard time stopping it? And so I went and talked to my um, old friend, Scott Hyam. We had worked together a lot before. And I asked him about this because he was covering the prescription opioid uh, epidemic. And we compared notes and quickly realized that these two epidemics, fentanyl and prescription pills were connected. And in fact, the fentanyl epidemic was the third wave of what started with prescription pills. Prescription mm -hmm. pills were on the street, you know, they were legal, they were highly addictive, government cracked down on them, people who addicted to them turned to heroin, and then the Chinese, Chinese drug dealers, exploited that market by selling, importing, exporting fentanyl, which was cheaper and more potent. And so Scott and I started to do some stories about fentanyl. And we started, just the two of us, and we're going to talk about this late, more later, but this expanded into a massive investigation involving like 60 people in the newsroom, led by Jeff Lean and Dave Fallis, and it became the Opioid Files. Right. So this was this huge investigation. But Alex, let's take a step back because you come into the post, you see this investigation in its burgeoning form, but you need to tell a documentary. Tell us about part one, about the history of this crisis that you dig into in this fascinating uh, two-part movie. Yeah, a lot of what the post did was was to focus on the second and third waves, but also the role of these big pharmaceutical distributors. But, uh, you know, strictly speaking, the opioid crisis starts with um, the story of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. And so part one really focuses on that. That's kind of the, the match that lights the, the, the forest fire that, that, that engulfs the country. Um, and so we spent a good time doing, dealing with that. Indeed, we went further back than that. We, we went as far back as King Tut. I mean, the remarkable thing is that the Purdue uh, Pharma Company convinced people after hundreds of years of experience of understanding just how addictive is uh, opium or opiates, um, going you know going back to the to to the opium war with uh, with China going way back further than that, um, that that suddenly they convinced people that oh no opiates really aren't addictive, and you can take as much as you want, uh, and the most important thing is to redefine pain. Um, so it was that kind of false advertising, which set in motion the crisis. And, and so the first part, part one of um, the crime of the century, is that tale up to about 2006, 2007, when a, a, a number of very assiduous and aggressive prosecutors from Western Virginia try to hold the company to account and run afoul of their politically motivated bosses in Washington and, and have to cut a deal which ends up sealing a lot of the evidence that would have exposed the crime and allowing hundreds of thousands more to die. You know, there's a term, Alex, in this in this first part that jumped out at me so many times, pseudo-addiction. What was all that about? I mean, one's addicted or not, but what was pseudo-addiction? The idea was 
to create a notion that there really was no such thing as addiction, that 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 it was pseudo addiction, that that really what people were responding to was that they weren't getting enough relief from the pain. So in order to cure pseudo addiction, the 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 response then was to titrate up, to up the dose. What what a magical formula for a company that happens to be pushing uh, opioids. You know, if uh, if there's a problem with addiction, no worries. We're just going to increase the dosage. It, it was madness, but it was something that was briefly accepted as uh, as gospel, and 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 yet it was part of a larger marketing mechanism that was really at play here. So this was all about marketing more broadly, getting this drug, these drugs to be available to not just people with severe pain, but more broadly than that. Yeah, I think, look, let's be honest and say that if you have um, a serious operation, opioids can be a hugely valuable drug for a few days afterwards. You know, I remember after a knee operation getting morphine. It was great. It, 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 it's hugely effective in terms of stealing pain. And for and long release um, oxycodone, which is oxycontin, that the contin is the long release mechanism that Purdue formulated for um, cancer patients at the end of life suffering excruciating pain. The, these pills can be very valuable. But the business strategy for Purdue was to say, oh, let's expand the market because it's not going to be a very profitable drug just to have this very narrow market. We want a much bigger market, and the bigger market would be anybody in any kind of chronic pain at all. Um, so if you're an 18-year-old and you have a knee injury, how about OxyContin? The problem was that that uh, once people started using OxyContin, they began to be addicted. And also, um, because there was so much potent drug in this uh, time-release formula, also a lot of people who were seeking uh, a, a vigorous high learned how to break down the time release formula and really get a massive amount of um, of opioid in their system by by snorting it or injecting it. And, and Purdue knew all these problems, but they swept them under the rug in the um, service of a marketing plan that was really designed to achieve greater profits. I mean, the drug ended up outselling Viagra. Um, wow. The problem was that there was this terrible um, collateral damage and the collateral damage was death. Wow. So we'd like to show a short clip from part two of the documentary now. Other drug companies moved into that market that Purdue had created. They moved into that huge opioid multi-billion dollar market. So other manufacturers began making generic versions of oxycontin, oxycodone, hydrocodone, um, drug distributors started sending massive amounts of these drugs downstream because they were corrupt doctors all over the country. It became like the Wild West. This was a new drug cartel that was being established in the United States, but instead of coming in from a foreign country, there were drug dealers who were wearing suits and lab coats. So Sari, what kind of tools did you use to start uncovering the breadth and scale of this disaster? So as Scott and I start to do our investigation, at the same time, there was a massive lawsuit being filed in Cleveland, in Ohio. And this really speaks to Alex's point about the collateral damage. Uh, thousands of cities, towns, counties, Native American tribes 
were suing the major players in the opioid drug industry for the collateral damage, for, the, for what had happened to their communities. And as part of this lawsuit, they were given access, the parties involved in this lawsuit were given access to a confidential DEA government database that is called Arcos. And it tracked every prescription pain pill from the manufacturer to the distributor to the pharmacy. So it showed where all these pills were going. And of course, we wanted that database. And we had tried to get it, but had been unfortunately unable to get it. And we thought it would be a blueprint for us in our reporting that that database would show kind of unprecedented insight into what the companies knew about which pills, how many pills were going into which communities. And so the Washington Post decided to sue to get that lawsuit because it was the, the parties involved in the lawsuit had it, but it wasn't made public and they didn't want to make it public. The problem was we couldn't get a law firm in Washington, a major law firm to represent us because they were all representing the drug industry. And so we got a, a sole practitioner in, in Akron, Akron, Ohio to represent us. We lost at the trial court. We appealed to the Sixth Circuit. We won there. And not only did we win the release of this database, but we, re, we won the release. We also had asked for in the lawsuit, uh, all the documents being exchanged by the parties. And we were thinking there could be potentially some explosive documents, internal emails, depositions, reports that would be in this lawsuit. So in July of 2019, this database and all these documents are released to the public. And the Washington Post, uh, let me just say that Marty Barron and Cameron Barr, our two leaders of the newsroom at that point, realized the significance of this story. And they um, dedicated uh, huge resources and, and, and people from all over the newsroom, editors, reporters, photographers, video journalists, and they actually uh, bought on an emergency basis a new computer to handle what was <laughs> 380 million transactions from this database. And we had this database team under investigated. It was led by incredibly talented Stephen Rich. And he just crashed on this day and night. And analyzed this data, and we were able to report from the database that between 2006 and 2014, the drug companies, the opioid companies, saturated this company country with 100 billion pain pills. And that's more than one pain pill per person per day in many of these communities. So that was one piece of the database. Then we had all these documents that we had to go through and people came over from the health team, Lenny Bernstein, who Scott mentioned, and Joel Achenbach, and Jeff Lean was running this whole operation. And we had this uh, video journalist, Dalton Bennett, go out to the communities that we could tell from the database where the pills were going. Very important roadmap. And so he would go to the hardest hit communities and, and he, he and his team would interview people there about the tremendous uh, death and destruction that these pills wrought. And a lot of his work is actually in uh, Alex's uh, documentary. Right. So, Scott, take me along. So we've got this big picture, this lawsuit, giving you all the details of 100 billion pills going around the country. But you had a particular character, and you mentioned him earlier on, Joe Ranazuzzi, who was key to understanding how the DEA was disarmed and handling this. Can you tell me about him and the role he played in developing this narrative? Yes. So Joe, um, Joe is a, a lifelong DEA agent. Uh, so he used to, you know, um, he used to uh, 
do meth houses and big cocaine trafficking organizations, uh, Mexican drug cartels. And then he was promoted to headquarters in Washington, D.C. to run the Drug Diversion Division, which oversees the pharmaceutical industry. And he very quickly realized that he was, he was dealing with a, a new drug operation that he had never seen, one that was uh, being fueled by corrupt doctors all across the country who were writing prescriptions for cash, doing, writing uh, scripts in exchange for sex. And then he was also seeing that there was a, a huge amount of pills that were being manufactured, uh, not just by Purdue Pharma, but by all these other companies that most Americans had never heard of. In fact, there's a company called Malincrot, uh, which manufactured the vast majority of oxycodone pills uh, in America. Uh, and then in the middle of the, the uh, drug manufacturers and, and the pharmacies are the drug distributors. And he saw that these drug distributors were sending millions and millions of pills downstream into these communities, into these pharmacies. And so he put them on notice in 2006 and 2007 uh, and said that they're required under the law to report these things and to, and to hold some of these shipments back if they deem them to be suspicious. And uh, the DEA had fined some of these companies and, and yet the pills kept flowing. First, they were flowing to internet pharmacies, then they were flowing to pill mills in, in South Florida. And they were just spreading like like a blob, like a like a it was like a monster movie, and these drugs just moving across the country, and more and more people were dying, more and more people were overdosing, more and more people were getting addicted, and and Joe uh, uh, launched this thing called the Distributor Initiative, and he felt like if he could choke off the supply there, that maybe they could he could start to save some of these communities. Well, what he didn't realize, I don't think, is that he was he was going up against some of the, the, the most powerful forces in, in America, in corporate America. And these companies fought back with everything that they had. Uh, they hired crisis communications firms. They hired lobbyists. Uh, they started funneling huge amounts of money uh, into members of Congress uh, to try to derail the DEA's enforcement efforts. Uh, and they were successful. They, they, got, uh, they got the law changed that, uh, it was, a, it was a law that the DEA was using to crack down on these companies, and they got the law changed and basically undermined the DEA at the height of the opioid epidemic. Uh, and they got Joe removed from his position at the DEA, and a whole new team was put in place that was much more uh, pro-business and, and pro-industry. Um, and, uh, and Joe and his entire team uh, were eviscerated. So Lenny and I worked on those stories uh, for, for a couple of years, along with uh, Jeff Lean and, and Dave Fallis as our editors. And, uh, and then we also did a collaboration with 60 Minutes and we did uh, three or four pieces with them um, based apart on what, what Joe was telling us. But then we, we, we branched out and we found other DEA agents and other investigators who were running into similar uh, problems. And they, they were establishing big, big cases against these companies and they were being shut down at the highest levels of, of the government. Um, so it was an incredible journey. And then when Sari and I you know, saw all these documents that we got from the lawsuit, we were kind of blown away by just the, the depth and breadth of, of the knowledge that these companies had of the epidemic and what they, what they did with that knowledge or what they didn't do with that knowledge. I just want to come back to one sentence you said. You said a couple of times they got the law changed. I, mm -hmm. People just bought in on both sides of the aisle, bought into changing this law that would so disarm the DEA? 
Yeah, I mean, with a few uh, uh, changes of wording in a statute, uh, they they basically changed uh, what the DEA could do. Previous to this law, the DEA could immediately shut down a, a company's drug um, distribution operations uh, if they believe that they were uh, they were sending drugs downstream when they shouldn't have been. Uh, without a hearing, they could do it immediately because there was a, there was a, a, an imminent danger to the community. That language was changed. Uh, so the DEA had a much higher burden. Uh, they have to show that it's an immediate threat to a community. And in most cases, they can't meet that burden. So that was one thing that was that was that was stripped away from them. And then the, the drug industry also got written into the law that if they got caught uh, doing something wrong, uh, they were they were uh, given a second chance. Um, and they could they could file a corrective action plan uh, before the DEA could take any action against them. So it's like you, you know going into a bank. Uh, the, the DEA's uh, chief judge uh, made this analogy. It's like a, a bank robber going into a bank, stealing the money, coming out, getting caught, and then saying, "Oh, okay, I'll just put the money back, and no no harm, wow. no foul." Um, wow. And so uh, it was a it was a it was a, a massive change in the law. And a lot of members of Congress, I don't think, really read this bill. In fact, we know that they they have publicly stated that they they didn't realize what they were signing on to. But that is now the law of the land. Alex, Joe is a, a very key player in your documentaries. You tell it, but there are a number of other people. Can you tell us about the process of finding these uh, these characters who bring to light? The tragedy. I'm thinking of a husband who loses his wife. Um, the efforts. As a, you have a local a doctor who is recognizing the problem and trying to struggle struggle with it. A dancer. Other people who are so deeply embroiled in this. And I'd love to know more about the storytelling process in this in the film. Well, long ago, I made a film called Enron: The Smartest Guys in the Room. And the reporter, um, the key reporter in that story, was a woman named Bethany McLean. And she and I always used to say, it's not about the numbers; it's about the people. Um, you know, and, and in this case, the same thing is true. In order to be able to tell this story, you have to tell the human story. Um, and so we we went out on the road to try to find people who could, um, who could carry the burden of this story. We found a number of what I would call detectives, in addition to Scott and Sari um, and Lenny, who were all in the film. You know, there were some people who were on this story early on. I got a New York Times reporter named Barry Meyer. Patrick Radden Keefe from the New Yorker, but also, you know, there was a character that um, actually the Washington Post discovered, a kind of Walter White-like character named Caleb Lanier, a guy who had a terrible uh, back um, issue, you know, was in an awful accident, started taking OxyContin. At some point, you know, his tolerance went up, he couldn't afford it anymore, he turned to heroin, then he realized, oh my gosh, um, you know, what about fentanyl? It's so much cheaper. Not only that, I can import it from China and then I can deal it um, and and cover my costs um, now that I'm addicted to opioids, but also make money. And so you could see the whole cycle in one character. Um, there was a country doctor, as you described, as somebody who tried to lead a crusade against Purdue. During the fentanyl crisis, there was a company called Insys that was rapaciously trying to sell fentanyl legally, which of course you can do, but they were trying to do it in a very corrupt way by flipping doctors, literally bribing them. They had a return on investment. So if you paid a doctor $10,000 for a so-called speakers program, they would insist that you have um, 
you know, that you would write at least $20,000 in prescriptions, which is, of course, the very definition of a bribe. But the person we got to describe that was a key salesperson at Insys, this company that was doing this, not named Alec Berlikoff, who's a character right out of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, um, you know, who, who would tell us with great brio and enthusiasm how he completely corrupted the system. He, he had a color coding system for doctors in terms of just how corrupt they would be. So through the people, both victims and perps, we were able to tell a story that uh, that I think people can see in very human terms. And some of them have ended up in behind bars, right? Indeed, Alec Berlikoff is one of those people. Sunrise Lee, an exotic dancer who became um, head of sales for a third of the country, for instance, is also behind bars. Caleb Lanier uh, is in um, prison in Texas. So yeah, a number of these people are behind bars, of course. Those are the people who usually end up behind bars. It's rare. I mean, in the case of Insys, actually, you have the CEOs behind bars. That's extremely rare. In the case of Purdue and other companies, you know, there was a plan, as I mentioned, for the Department of Justice to charge um, the three key executives at Purdue with multiple felonies. That would have sent a powerful message to the industry. But as so often happens, when you have a powerful corporation, they lean in with powerful advocates, people like Mary Jo White, and Rudolph Giuliani, who really brought a lot of pressure to bear on the Department of Justice. Department of Justice backed down, and they um, they agreed to cut a deal. And the key feature of that deal, while it seemed like a, a lot of money was being paid in fines, the key feature of the deal was to bury the evidence that had been collected by prosecutors, which would have given uh, so many people an understanding of, of, of how these crimes were working. And that, I think, is a really important lesson from this whole story. Over and over and over again, a lot of lawsuits, the lawsuits that Scott and Sarah mentioned, there's a scene in the film where, where we show companies settling. But when the companies settle and they pay a big fine, almost always they bury the evidence. And so what's really needed and what's so important about what Scott and Sari did and, and, and this whole enterprise that we've tried to put together is getting at the truth. Because at the end of the day, that's what prevents these crimes from happening again. Wow. Sari and Scott, one of you would, should take this on. You've both mentioned to me how you created this huge database, but it's open. Talk to me about how that's important, and we can only do this briefly, but telling the story in local communities around the rest of the country. So well, um, we, we made a decision. <laughs> Is that okay, Sari? Uh, so we made a decision very early on to, um, to take down our paywall and allow the public to get access to this information that, that we fought so hard to get and spent a lot of money um, in lawsuits to, to free up this information. So, uh, so uh, everybody out there, if you wanna see uh, which manufacturer, which drug distributor and which pharmacy dispense uh, opioids in your community, you can go online to, uh, to the Washington Post and put in opioid files and you can put in your county and you can see in that granular detail how many um, pills were shipped to your community. And we also made public all the internal emails, memorandums, documents, uh, all kinds of, there's just, there's millions of records now that are available um, because of the lawsuit that was filed by the Washington Post, along with the Charleston uh, Gazette Mail in West Virginia, we, that was a, a joint lawsuit. And so we, we really felt that it was very important, uh, A, to make this uh, available to the general public, but B, to, to 
to make it available uh, for free um, because there's a lot of people out there who uh, who are reeling from this epidemic who can't afford to, uh, to pay for a, a subscription to the Washington Post. And we wanted to make sure that everybody uh, had an opportunity to see exactly what happened here. Uh, that database and those documents are a blueprint uh, to this epidemic. Um, and it's, it's quite shocking to take a look at it. And I would just so add I, to that, Francis. I would just add to that one last thing, which is the opioid epidemic continues. It got worse under COVID. It continues and the lawsuits continue. The very first trial that's been held um, is it just started uh, this week in uh, West Virginia, it just opened. Yeah. And so the lawsuits continue, the epidemic continues. And like I said, it, it got much worse under COVID. Wow, and that brings me to my last question. I'm afraid it has to be a quick one, Alex, for you. Of course, I watched this incredibly distressing movie, movie through the lens of the pandemic. What do those two disasters have in common, both costing hundreds of thousands of American lives? What do they tell us about our public health system? I think they tell us that our public health system is in need of a major overhaul. Both those, both these crises show that we've got to rebuild it because the incentives are all wrong. The incentives are profit-oriented incentives. And there's nothing in the Hippocratic Oath that I recall that has to do with supply and demand or market share. It has to do with do no harm and figure out how to serve the patient, not the customer or the client. And so I think we have to overhaul our healthcare system in order to get ourselves back on the right track. Well, all three of you, thank you so much. Alex Gibney, Sari Horowitz, Scott Hyam, thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Francis. Great. Thank you, Francis. Yes, thanks, Francis. A reminder that the new documentary will air next week, starting on Monday in the evening, an HBO documentary, The Crime of the Century, premiering next week. So be sure to tune in. And also tune in with us tomorrow morning at 9.30. My colleague Jonathan Capehart will be doing First Look when he'll talk to reporters and columnists from the Washington Post about the biggest stories of the week. That's at 9 a.m., 9 a.m. tomorrow. Thank you so much. I'm Francis Steve Sellers. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.